Good morning and welcome to part six of our series Faith Like Joseph and today we're going to be learning about from dreams to reality. We're going to see the dreams that God gave Joseph decades earlier coming to fruition and we're going to learn how we too can respond as God's people in our own context. We've spent five Sundays already journeying through Joseph's story and we're now going to be discovering a very different Joseph to the one that we first met. He has gone from a cocky little upstart to a wise presidential leader and father. And we're going to get to see God in the process of using this guy to change a nation and ultimately the nations for good. And it's here that we're going to discover rich veins of the gospel that help us in whatever situation we find ourselves in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, it's 10 chapters <laughs> to the end of Genesis, to be honest. Uh, bear with me, I'm not going to read all of it. What I'm going to do, uh, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 41, I'm going to read from some of Genesis 41 and summarise the rest of the story for the sake of time today, just while you're turning in your Bibles, and it's going to come on the screen as well. Um, just a quick uh, bringing us up to speed, just to remind us of where we're at so far. Joseph, having been enslaved by his um, jealous brothers, uh, and then getting imprisoned following his boss's wife's false accusations. He's then used by God in prison to interpret his fellow prisoners' dreams. And then he's subsequently forgotten. And let's look at the beginning of uh, chapter 41 from Genesis. It says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So then Pharaoh's chief cupbearer remembers Joseph, who he'd been imprisoned with. And he tells Pharaoh, who then summons Joseph and says to him, I hear you can interpret dreams. So Joseph replies, verse 16, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his two dreams. So we skip to verse 25 and it continues. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning 
and wise man and sets him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And so Joseph becomes Pharaoh's prime minister. He gets to marry. He has a family. And through his policies, Egypt stores up during those bountiful years more grain than can be measured. And once famine hits and Egypt gets to reap the rewards of storing this harvest, then all the other nations start arriving and asking for help. At the end of chapter 41, verse 57, it says all the earth came to them for help. And among those desperate parties are Joseph's own birth family. Ten of his brothers arrived, the very same ten who had thrown him out like garbage back in the beginning. And Joseph recognises them immediately, but they don't recognise him. Through his continued disguise and a catalogue of tests and trials, we can maybe talk about another time, he, that he places them under, it eventually leads to him being openly reunited with his amazed family, including his once grieving father. And through all these events, God ends up placing this entire family in the land of Egypt, from which 400 years later, burst the people of Israel and their own story of oppression and rescue and promises fulfilled. And it's there we get to see this common thread See, Joseph's story is a miniature depiction of God's great story. There's this echo of slavery and rescue that weaves its way all the way through Joseph's life. But then on a bigger scale, for his family's descendants, Israel, we see the story of oppression and slavery and divine rescue. But then on an even bigger scale, universally for all who find freedom and fulfilment in Jesus, the promised Messiah, the promised rescuer, it's the same for us. We humans are enslaved to our passions, to our brokenness, to the powers behind the veil of this world. But in Jesus, we can discover divine rescue that is unearned and jaw-droppingly beautiful. Let's just look at the details for a moment. You've got Pharaoh, a human king, and he's releasing Joseph, setting him in a place of privilege and responsibility before all the predicted events have actually transpired. Joseph's name has been cleared while he's awaiting the final reveal of all that had been promised to him. And we get the same with Israel. The nation of Israel, 400 years later, we see Israel are rescued from slavery and finally delivered into the literal land of promise, ultimately fulfilling a dream that God had given Joseph's own father, Jacob. And they are still awaiting the final reveal of all that had been promised, including the coming Messiah, Jesus. And so the same goes for us now. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That is the good news of Jesus. 
You've got Joseph and Pharaoh. We've got us and the king of all kings. And for all who accept the invitation of Jesus' lordship and forgiveness, you are set free. Our names are cleared. We are placed in a position of privilege and responsibility. And while we wait in faith for the final reveal of all else that has been promised. That is the good news of Jesus. Maybe that is news to you. Maybe that's brand new to you. That's available to you right now. Please do get in touch. We would love to speak with you, talk it through with you, answer any questions you have, pray with you. Please do not pass over the best news you can ever hear in your life. Jesus' invitation is open to you. You can step into it. You see, Joseph, at the end of Genesis chapter 50, right at the end of his story, he says to his brothers, he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And this same bigger picture gives us confidence to continue in faithfulness while we wait on God's promises and while we sometimes get to watch them being fulfilled as dreams become reality. This all gives us confidence. Because even right now, in some ways, we are in a time of famine, aren't we? We're in a place of restriction. We're in a place of need. We're in a place of grief. We're in a place of yearning for release and bounty. We are waiting for God's promises to further unfold and we are looking to discover what he is really up to. And so I want to leave us with three things that will really help us today that we discover in Joseph's story. While we wait in a time of famine, we must recognise firstly that God positions his people. He positions his people strategically ahead of time. Psalm 105 verse 16 brilliantly says that when he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. In Genesis 45 verse 5, Joseph himself recognises this. He said, God sent me before you to preserve life. God is in the search and rescue business and we can be sure that whether we are facing natural calamities or man's evil, God is in the business of providing a means of rescue for us and for the nations. And we as Beacon Church, we are positioned where God wants us right now. We need to not look at what other churches are doing. We need to be asking and continue to ask, what does God want us, Beacon, to be doing? Where he has placed us right now? And with the resources that he has already given us to fulfil those purposes. And with that in mind, that comes, brings us to my second point. We need to recognise that God positions his people. We also need to recognise that God has already provided what we need. We need to not be looking at the negatives of this. We need to not be looking at our losses. We need to recognise that we are rich and that God has provided everything we need. Genesis 41 verse 49 describes the size of the harvest that Egypt reaps during the time of abundance. It was beyond measure. And the harvest of resources that God has made available for us, his people, is beyond measure. His mercies are new every morning. Psalm 31 verse 19 says, How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 37 verse 18 the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, 
they have abundance. We are rich and we have everything we need for the road ahead. But there's an actually a more significant provision at play here as well. Because in chapter 41 of Genesis, verse 54, it says, There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. That word is quite significant. You see, the world around us is hungry for the truth. We have the bread of life. We have Jesus. My uh, neighbour at our social distancing VE Day street party, uh, just completely out of the blue, been praying for opportunities to share Jesus with friends and neighbours. And uh, a couple of weeks ago at the street party, literally out of the blue, uh, she said to me, I so wish I could have what you have, your conviction and your passion for the God of the Bible. I'm jealous of. I wish I could have that, but I have stumbling blocks. And we spent nearly an hour talking about these things, working it through and pointing her to Jesus. And I'm trusting it won't be long before she gives her life to him as her Lord and Saviour. People are hungry. Another friend of ours keeps saying to us, I am so jealous of your faith. I wish I could have that. I just can't right now. People are hungry and people can see something in us that fills that hunger. Let's be ready to offer the bread of life to all who approach the storehouse. God has already provided everything we need for his purposes ahead. God positions his people. God has already provided what we need. And lastly, I just want to, uh, us to linger on the fact that God's promises are not the end goal. God's promises are not the end goal. Uh, prophetic words, dreams, uh, and the Bible as God's primary means of speaking to us are divine encouragements that sustain us. But we always need to focus on the bigger picture, not just on the details. God's promises are not the end goal. Jesus is. C.S. Lewis really helpfully talks about this regarding any aspect of God's grace, really. He talks about a time he was in a tool shed and there was a little gap in the wood in one of the walls and a beam of light was coming into the gloom in the shed and his, his um, eyes were caught by it and he was attracted to it, looking at it and he could see the motes of dust in the light. But he realised if he shifted his position, he could look outside and rather than looking at the beam of light, he looked along the beam of light to its source, to the sun. He says we need to not be, when we see clues to God, echoes of his grace, we need to not be looking at the beam of light, we need to be looking along the beam of light. A current example would be um, Ginny Bergen. Uh, she's at our New Frontiers Church in Sheffield and um, she's very prophetic. God uses her in a big way over the many, many years. For example, um, she had a, a prophetic word in spring 1997 about the UK being filled with flowers and God touching the nation in a remarkable way. Later that summer, Princess Diana died. The UK was shaken and was covered with flowers. Um, the same Ginny in 2008, she had another word about a shaking in the nation, about shoppers having to face eternity as they go out, about the church having to be church in a very different way. For very obvious reasons, this March, that went viral around the blogosphere, around the internet. Do you remember what was, what was said in 2008? And so in response to that being passed around again, Ginny sent out a video which really helpful, helpfully um, 
points us to look along the beam rather than at the beam. These are her words. She says, the prophetic is not to sit back and say, oh, look, they were able to discern the times, but about comfort and encouragement. The Old Testament prophets always pointed the people back to the God of all history who is in control, back to what he'd already promised. The prophet always points back to the bigger picture. So we can be sure that God is at work, even if we can't see it clearly. She continues, the prophet Habakkuk said, how long should I pray? How long can I cry out to you until you do something? And God said, I am doing something, but if I told you, you just wouldn't believe me. And later when Habakkuk sees what God's doing, he goes back to God and he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. Those dreams that God gave the teenage Joseph, they were a sign of his grace, not only for Joseph, but also for the nations at the time and also for us today. Let's not merely fix our eyes on the beam of light. Let's look along the beam of light and look at the sun itself. Let's look at the sun, S-O-N, himself. Let's remember that God positions his people strategically. Let's remember that he has provided everything we need Let's remember that his promises are not the end goal. Jesus is. And we can be confident that he has placed us in this position as a church for our own good and for the blessing and salvation of those around us. Let us rely on the storehouse of bread we have for others, not just for ourselves, ready to preach the good news. Let us stay alert for opportunities to share it wider. And let's look to the source of promises and not just the promises themselves. Let's look along the beam, not just at the beam. And know that God is working it all out for good and for his purposes. Next week, John will be looking at how Joseph himself serves as an echo of Jesus, the Messiah to come. And in the meantime, I just trust that this alone helps us fix our eyes on Jesus himself as the great hero of all that scripture points to while we continue to walk under his promises. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of all history. We celebrate you for all you are doing, even though we haven't got a clue. So John Piper says there are 10,000 things you're up to. We might get to see three of them. Lord, we thank you and we trust you that this is all in your capable hands and you're working it together for the good of those who love you, for the blessing of salvation, of others for the advance of your kingdom and the building of your church and your name being famous. We offer these things up to you. Help us to step in confidence, knowing you've positioned us and provided for us and help us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>